Hey guys, Adam here. This is not an episode of the Startup Diary and there's no Harrison on the mics today. Before you stop listening, this is still going to be an interesting show. This is an episode of Startup Stories. This is where I get to interview interesting people from the world of business and hear about their journeys, their wins, their losses and what they've learned along the way. If you would like to go and catch up with every episode because season one has already finished, head over to Startup Stories and hit subscribe. Alternatively, we're going to be dropping every show here every Saturday until the end of season one. There's eight episodes in each season. Enjoy. Hampton, firstly, a huge thank you for jumping on the mics today. For people that may not know who you are and what you're about, give us the backstory. Oh, man. Uh, I am a builder, uh, an inventor, I guess, is probably how I'm best known. Uh, engineering leader I've been doing. I've been involved in companies, founding them, being an early employee, and actually at this point being in a fairly mature startup uh, for, gosh, 15 years. Um, I've kind of been doing this one way or another. And uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I think what's weird about me is I, I have little dashes everywhere, these little projects that have become big things and just kind of totally random stuff from Wikipedia Mobile, uh, which was one of the first early mobile uh, websites and applications that got really successful, uh, to some programming languages that I've made, to uh, some technologies that also power a lot of kind of e-com sites around the world today, to just all sorts of random stuff but my job today is mostly involves meetings so you know it's a little little different but but everywhere that's cool you can imagine for me as a as a non-technical founder trying to piece together your sort of bio and what you've been working on and then <laughs> and then try and make sense of it has just been i guess a big learning curve for me i've really dug in through your your website through your wikipedia and then trying to learn about SaaS and the other stuff that you've built um it's been a bit of a roller coaster um but in terms of some of the prep work that we, that we did ahead of this interview is there were some notes around a Kickstarter that you did, and I couldn't find much about it on the internet. Um, so I wanted to just ask, uh, could you share some light on what the Kickstarter project was, why you chose Kickstarter, and I guess just really what happens. I think everyone's really interested in that sort of platform and how, how projects get funded. Yeah, so one of the startups that I, I was co-founding with my husband, actually, Michael, um, he, by training, uh, went to Oxford and Cambridge for various bio PhD stuff. Uh, he's now on computers cause, uh, it, it pays better. Um, but <laughs> we, we were going to kind of combine our interests and we both have an interest in genetics and just, you know, all the science around it. Um, and you know, I think I'd gotten sequenced by 23 and me, um, at the time, but we wanted to get. Uh, whole genome sequencing done, uh, or I wanted to do it for myself because I figured I remember where the human genome project, you know, was going on, and you know, billions of pounds of research and money was just getting poured into to the different competing projects, and it took years and years and years. And then uh, there's a company called Illumina that uh, was actually in our neighborhood in San Francisco where we were at at the time, and they had a Roughly, I think at the time, it, the cost was like $4,000 to do a full human sequence, um, down from billions, basically. 
Andrew, just uh, sorry to jump in. Can you explain to, to me in like super lemon sermons, what, what does that, what does that mean? What is a, a full genome sequence? Yeah. So if you think of your DNA as a bunch of library books, uh, it's like a big library shelf just filled, filled with a giant encyclopedia. Um, most genetic testing is sort of, it's effectively looks at one letter. So it's like grab volume 26, turn to page 97 and tell me what letter you see there. And if it's a G, then it means this. If it's C, it means that. Um, and that's roughly like what 23andMe do is they pull out about a thousand letters, depends on the era, but whatever. They pull out these little letters and then they use those as clues to what might be, uh, you know, your genetic background or some issues that you could have or whatever. So they're basically just doing little, little spot checks. The full sequence is basically a file that you could download that is the entire bookshelf of you. Um, or at least your genetic sequence, um, which is a lot more information. It's, it's a terabyte of information just on you. Um, it is not practically useful at this point because it's just so big that we haven't actually developed um, a ton of techniques for, for using that information. But, uh, you know, I'm, I've been very interested over the years in citizen science, and I felt like that I would love to try to go write an algorithm or mess around with my own DNA and <laughs> post it online and share about myself. I'm, I'm very open about everything in my life. Um, and, you know, I'd be happy to let people tinker around in my DNA. It doesn't bother me. That's not everybody's take, but it's mine. So now we decided to try to, we started looking into how to do this. We started putting together a business plan. Um, and yeah, so we basically did a Kickstarter um, trying to uh, have people sign up to get sequenced, basically. Um, and, uh, we, we launched it at a conference. We talked about it at a conference. We got a particular promotional video. Um, and I'll be honest, what happened with it was, um, I think we were going to have it run for five days. And after the first day, um, some stuff had gone on in our kind of personal world previous to this and the pressure of having that up emotionally uh we were just having constant panic attacks trying to check the page like to a level that we actually pulled it um and i wow. know that's not a glamorous story but it, it's a i mean it's a true it's the truth um we just you know i think there was even an article came out in like the san jose times or something like that and they were talking to a an ethicist about our work and you know is this ethical to to allow people to see their stuff and i just i couldn't we, we already had so much PTSD about media stuff that like just, we realized that we weren't emotionally ready to do a startup. Um, especially one that is brave and has a very different view and is going to go try to do something that, you know, you might even have an ethicist quote on, which like, I don't think we'd even really thought through that this is a thing. Um, and you know, people had negative reactions to it. Um, and not, not severe, nothing, you know, we weren't like, the front front page of the Daily Mail or anything, but you know it was, you know, too much for it. We just couldn't do it, so we just pulled it um, and decided to take three months uh, to get our, our heads together and figure out what we wanted to do after that. Um, you know, I think there is an alternate universe where that's a big business. Um, it was called Gene Hub because we were. I don't know if people are familiar with GitHub, but the idea was also we were going to allow people to share their information and compare it and kind of be a place to hold that information. Super so, yeah. interesting. I, I don't think many people talk about the that emotional roller coaster of, even if it's not. It didn't sound like it was failing or it wasn't getting traction. 
but it was it was more around the criticisms that were taking yeah, place. Yeah, and it, it wasn't enough. So, you know, there's every time you read about a Kickstarter, there's like, well, in the first day you should get this percent or you know, like what what are the what does it even mean to hit the ends, you know, or like yeah, and, and you know, you have to keep promoting through it, right? Like, you know, we need to get online or on the phone with that journalist who did that article and give quotes and go out there and push it and you know, it's just but what was it? What was the actual trigger? What was the what was the the breaking point? The straw on the camel's back that made you that you and was it you and your partner at that point in time that launched this project? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What, well, what, we're what was that conversation like? You were married. What was that conversation like in terms of how you both decide something you've both put obviously a lot of time into? How do you have that yeah. conversation? Yeah. So we were actually traveling a bit at the time um, while we were doing this and kind of going around. I think we were, we live in New York now. We're actually visiting New York at the time, staying kind of in an Airbnb. Um, and I think we were, we tried to go and enjoy a Saturday and we like went and got brunch and we were trying to like relax. And like, we knew we'd done all this work to put everything in order. And I think just on the way back, like, we both just synchronously had a panic attack and sat down on a stoop. Um, like it was like a brownstone and it was, an, it was a beautiful sunny day, summer day, beautiful out, sun was shining. I remember that. And I just, I, I couldn't breathe. Um, and I just remember feeling that and thinking like, I mean, I, I think, I think I just said, I was like, I have to, we have to take this down. Like I can't even enjoy a Saturday right now. And like, if this thing's a success, it's not like, you know, it's going to get better. <laughs> like, you don't, you don't finish your Kickstarter and then go relax and like have a nice calm day. And, you know, I think that mental preparedness, like, um, is, is a thing that people don't talk about a lot, but really being in the headspace, um, and staying in the headspace. Like, I think the thing that has made me, I, I build, I love building teams. I love building products. I love building new technologies. I love building everything. And, uh, I like making stuff, um, but I think the thing that I struggle with when I've been a founder and I, I work for an amazing founder now, uh, Jen Hyman, uh, who you should listen to a million podcasts with her, but what it requires is like kind of single mindedness, um, to purpose and task, um, and a unshaking belief in something. And, you know, or at least, at least to project that <laughs> or be able to maintain it, um, for your team. And I think for me, that's something I really struggle with because I'm very uh, self-analytical and very, um, you know, I'm always thinking through every angle of stuff. And, you know, this was a thing where I certainly was not in the place to doggedly believe this idea it wasn't just a good idea. Like, I still believe it's a good idea, but worth the personal strain, right? That trade-off, like I'm birthing this new idea, I'm birthing this thing and I have to make it happen right i have to will it into being and you know i think that's tough for me or especially was for that one but when you when you look at your track record in terms of what you've built how is this emotionally different to let's just say building a software language is it because you're in full control of the product and you can ship it and it didn't there was no external factors that could influence it is it that level of control like how does this differ from everything else that you've built in your in your past yeah i mean <clears throat> I would say that, I mean, that particular one is, is an interesting one because like that has never been the reason I've given up on a project since then. Um, but there was, uh, I, we, we had, 
like I said, been through some personal stuff with the the press about some um, uh, uh, gay rights stuff we've been working on publicly. I know I'm being very vague about stuff, but it's we, we kind of got the news for some stuff that that we're still proud of, but it's it was emotionally tough. And then trying to found the company after having gone through that, uh, okay. that, that it, just that particular one was really interesting um, with the psychology around it. Um, I think the thing that is different though between founding, let's, let's say we weren't in a bizarre personal moment. Um, just, to was, just so I can piece the puzzle. Is that anything? If I just say the word Mozilla, is that the moment? Yeah. That is the okay. moment. Okay, yeah, I just yeah. wanted to double double check where we are in my timeline. But carry on. Yeah, when, you're, when, you, when your name is on uh, uh, Fox News commentators' lips, uh, you know, that's not a fun place to be. Um, yeah, so, but I think normally with founding, the the difference between just creating and founding, right, for me is when, when I make something, I'm kind of giving it to the world. Like, I, I don't charge for the software. Well, I, there are some software that I charge for but like, I feel like I'm giving a gift out when I make those sorts of products. Um, even when I work for a founder, like now I have an amazing CEO, like I said, and you know, I, I am building things that I feel like I'm giving them to our customers. I'm giving them to the company. I'm making them for our employees and our customers, right? Like that's the, the feeling I have. And I feel like when I've been founding something, I'm having to will it into being, I'm having yeah. to, prove the worth of its existence at every step. Um, I'm not giving it or that's not how it, that's not how my brain has interpreted it in the past. So I make a computer language and people are like, they have opinions about it. Some hate it, some love it, you know, like, like, you know, they have reactions, but mostly you're giving it, you know, and they use it and enjoy it. Um, and that it's different. Plus I don't make any money on those things. Those are all, <laughs> volunteer work basically yeah to be honest it also makes sense because when i was looking at your uh, your book your recent book is your pricing models around it is uh, you if uh, correct me if i'm wrong but you use something called the honor system which is you sort of you choose what you pay uh, based on the value that the book drives and i guess that's that's how you think about creation is like as long as you're creating something and the other person deems it valuable your book yes. the other person chooses the value that they pay is that what made you choose that as a price model? Is it just naturally fit well with you as a person? I don't know. I just, it was interesting. I, I found it on the website. Yeah. I thought, oh, this is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good, good, fine. Good Googling. You really did do your research. <laughs> um, yeah. So, so we've, we've done some traditionally published books with uh, pragmatic uh, programmers, but um, available at your local internet store. Um, <laughs> But there's also, yeah, we self-publish as sort of a, a team-based product, a book for companies. Yeah, and, and I, I just, you know, the satisfaction I take in my life is from having an impact on the world. Like, that is, there was a moment in, in my life when um, I come from a religious background. Yeah, we're, we're going deep. I come from a religious background, and, you know, their meaning in life is derived from... Um, both belief and sort of action, um, but mostly belief and it's sort of intrinsic to the universe. And then, um, when I sort of no longer believed that, um, I realized that the sort of value in my life, uh, wasn't intrinsically there. I have to create it. Right. And, uh, I, I also am a student of genealogy and I have a lot of, you have no idea how many things I'm nerdy about. <laughs> and, you know, it's, it was startling to me at the time to look back over my ancestors and see how many um, 
you know, I, I have some ancestors who are very famous, so I found those. But the generation, there's so many generations where they sort of just don't exist as far as, you know, maybe you find their name written in one place and that is the totality of their life. And I think for me, that um, was startling to realize like that you could um, pass through this whole world and, and kind of, it's fairly easy to do nothing. And for me, I drive, I think my entire adult life has been around, you know, wanting to be remembered and wanting to have a positive impact. Like I want somebody to read that book and work better with their team. Like that is the goal. And I would love to enjoy a life where I have nice things and, you know, uh, pay the bills, obviously. But it's sort of that like impact on people is, is the thing by far that, that, that gets me out of bed in the morning. And just out of curiosity, you mentioned you've, you've looked over your, your, your ancestors, done the genealogy, and mm-hmm. saw just names appear. And that's like you say, that's the totality of that person's life. How much of your thought process and thinking today is reactive to you thinking, I don't want that to be me? Or were you already like that and this just compounded your, your thoughts around the subject? I, mean, I'm, I'm, I think I was born slightly anxious. Um, you know, <laughs> but in terms of, in terms of impact on the world, like what I heard then was you don't want to be, you don't want to be just a name on a piece of paper in three, four, 500 years time. You want to have more of a, an imprint and impact on the world. Was that more well, reactive? A couple pieces of paper. Yeah. More than one, <laughs> um, more than just like birth and death record. Uh, no, I, I, I think it's intrinsic. I think these things, sorry, I think it was, it's always been a part of me. Um, but I just think that all of these things and the ways of thinking about the world around me, um, it has definitely changed my behaviors. There's certain moments where, you know, I might want to blend in or take the easier path or be quiet about something or not speak up. And I think, you know, thinking to myself, I'm going to make the choice that long term, I'm going to be most proud of about the impact that this has on the world, even if it's negative for me in the short term. So I might be stressed out by something I might, you know, not feel great about myself, or you know, whatever, have to go through some stuff. And it's always like a trade off of, of those feelings. And uh, it is more pushed me to make, you know, braver decisions than I have um, that I would otherwise. And I guess I guess to ask the the hard question now, then is, knowing that uh, courage and short-term pain for, for long-term legacy is important. Do you regret making a decision to pull that Kickstarter or, or not pursuing that project? Cause that feels like uh, gene hub. Uh, I think if I've got the name right, could have yeah, made like a yeah. huge, could have made a huge impact. Like, is there any regret there? No, because I think being comfortable with your own weaknesses and failures is important like you have to forgive yourself like I was in a a mental state and in a emotional situation where I I don't I can't be mad at myself for crying uncle in that moment um now if I after that just decided I'm no longer going to do anything cool or I'm no longer going to push you know my life forward or you know try to try to make the world a better place like yeah and then I would I would be more mad at myself but no, I just, I don't, I don't even think that's, that's a good lens to think of it. It's more like taking away the lessons from all of that and like learning to be separate myself from what people say about me. Um, you know, like all this sort of like, that, that is not 
if you're a normal human being, <laughs> um, and no offense, sometimes founders aren't because you just have to get through it. Um, but, <laughs> uh, if you're a normal human being, when people say something bad about you in a comment thread or whatever on a stupid article, even a positive article, right? Um, you know, it, it hits you by default. You know, you, most people hear that, you know, we hear the negative things. Um, and you really, I, I think, you know, celebrities don't talk about this and founders don't talk about this, but there's absolutely a real mental journey that has to go through when you are successful, right? Like, it's funny, if, if, if your startup is not successful, you probably won't have to learn this skill. Um, <laughs> But if you win the race, if you really come up with a fantastic idea, you build the culture you want and the company is thriving, you know, you are going to have to deal with people who want to take you down and people who are going to want to say mean things and learning to separate the version of you that, you know, you represent yourself to your coworkers. There's a version of you that in, you know, in the middle of the night when you wake up thinking, Oh my gosh, I have no idea what I'm doing. What is going on? Um, that's a different version. And then it's a different version of who you are with family or old friends. You know, you kind of go back to who you were as a kid and, you know, there's just different concepts all around about who you are. And I think really addressing that and learning that, like those are skills that I picked up from that period. And I think I wouldn't trade anything for the lessons that I've learned about myself. Um, you know, my job now is not nearly as public facing, um, VP of engineering for a, well, hey, we just got unicorn status, so billion-dollar company, so that sounds fancy. <laughs> Congratulations. Uh, thank you. Um, uh, yeah, but it's a very different job, right? Like, I'm not, you know, I'm not, uh, I, I definitely do interviews for things, but not, it's, it's just different, right? My job is really internal, and it's really making sure that the business and culture and technology and products are awesome, um, but it's, it's a different job. No, I love that. I, I love hearing your thought process and how you sort of internalize what went on in that period and what you've learned from it. And the way that you spoke about it really resonated with me because I'm a, I'm a first time founder, um, six years in, and I've actually taken the steps of, I'm meeting a business coach for the, and that's an ego thing for me. I've never done it before. Cause I'm like, I want to do this myself, but I'm meeting a business mm. coach tomorrow morning, actually at the point of recording this for the first time, just because there's, there's the mental, um, doubts that kick in. And if you, unless you've got a sounding board or someone to speak to or the tools to manage that process, it's really, really hard. And like you say, no one speaks about it. And that's what we're trying to do on the, the sister podcast of this, which is startup diary, which is like a therapy session for me every week where I just sort of speak about what's going on. But yeah. Um, yeah. The way you spoke about I that. Absolutely. I absolutely recommend business coaches. I like, how do I, how do I put this? Uh, they, on one hand, it is a, there is no magic to their job, right? Like it is a, it's not a science. It is not, it is not at all. Um, it's barely a profession, uh, like in the, the, you know, training or like anything we qualifications or methods that you should use. Um, but it's one of those things that going to them, allowing yourself to talk to a person like that is the most important part right? It is having somebody who you feel like you can share with, because uh, founding is lonely. Even when you have more than one person, it is a lonely mission. Um, because there's things that you think that you can't say. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I absolutely I have never worked with a good CEO who did not have a good coach that they worked with. 
That's um, super, like super positive for me to hear. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to the first session. I'm going to report back on our, on our other show about what it was like. And I, I actually want to use that as a jumping off point because I, we've pointed out that you've, you've done a lot of building in the past and now you're not founding, you're, you're in employment. Like a lot, of the, a lot of the listeners may be in that similar situation. Like is founding for everyone or what, what was your decision to go into, uh, air quotes, a job? Talk, talk to me about that. Yeah, I mean, this, you know, for me is, is uh, so far, two and a half years now, a fantastic middle ground because I get to create all sorts of cool stuff. Um, rebuilding, and we have a giant, we're the world's largest dry cleaning facility in the world. And like, <laughs> I get to play with that as my playground for building things. And our, our retail stores, I built these self-service modules that have been featured in a bunch of different media, um, like, totally innovative um, technologies that are used by our customers every day. So I get that thrill because, and, and what we do, I mean, you look up in Toronto, but you know, for me, it's very, it's ecologically friendly. It makes women feel empowered. It makes people feel really special. Um, it's, it's something I find very satisfying. And for me, what was, it goes back to the, uh, to be a founder, you have to be doggedly in your direction. You have to believe Stubborn. Stop. Have to be stubborn like, sometimes. You have to be so stubborn. You have to be like, and you have to be a little bit kind of unreasonable. Yep. Like it's a little off your rocker. Um, that's like, <laughs> wait, that's the proper way to do it. I need that on my um, business card. <laughs> it's just a little off your rocker. Um, yeah. And you know, for me, I, I, I have trouble with that. Like, I don't know if it's the ADHD part of me. I, I, I'm always questioning and rethinking and questioning and rethinking and questioning and rethinking. Um, you know, for me, I love experimentation. I love kind of like changing concepts and it's hard for me to actually the hardest thing for me has been, I've, I've never been the founder raising around and I just feel so awkward and weird asking somebody for money. Um, like it's just like, to go in there and be like, give me cash. Cause this one idea I have, it is amazing. And you're going to give me money for it. It's great. Um, that's tough for me. Um, and I think I love working with somebody who just can do that. Just, you know, Jen Hyman is just amazing. Once again, if you have not seen interviews with her, please, she is just brilliant. She's the smartest person I've ever worked with. Um, and she is just dogged in what she's doing. We are going to change the way people get dressed every single day. Um, there's an economic issue with how the clothes work. They're wasteful and work. I mean, she's, She's had that vision for 10 years and she has not slowed down in pushing that. And for me, it's almost like somebody giving me cover, right? Like that I can, I can fall in right behind that and like make that happen. Um, and I find a lot of satisfaction from that. Um, if I had a time machine, I'd love to go back in time and be her technical co-founder. <laughs> um, and you know, I think if honestly, if I, if I, when I found it, I'm sure I will. There's, there's no way I'm not. Um, it's just, I like making stuff too much. Um, but I would definitely find more a business partner who is more dogged than me. Um, your, your counterpart. Me, it feels like you're enjoying being in the slipstream of Jen right now because you get to create and not worry about that, that, the sharp edge of the fundraising and all that good stuff. But you think if you, if you raised again, you'd find that, that balance in that for the bits that you don't enjoy. Yeah. And I think, you know, honestly, it's really tough to find that personality. Like it really, really is because, you know, I have, 
I think being a tech person, an outgoing tech person who's known, I get approached by a lot of non-technical people uh, who want to found a company and say, hey, would you found it with me? I'll give you 10%. You know, <laughs> like that's hilarious. Um, and, uh, you know, I, it's really tough because they have to really impress, like, I, I haven't met that, or I haven't had that moment where I'm like, wow, you are so much smarter than me at this stuff. <laughs> like, yep. I guess the barrier, like I can go show code I've written and I can, I clearly can go write code, right? But if somebody's never been a founder before, um, I'm just speaking as being a technical, like part of one of those partnerships, um, you know, it's like, oh, I ran a small business for a little bit. I'm like, yeah, that's totally different than the, like, what I, <laughs> that counterpart that I need. No, it makes sense. I've been on the flip side of it. I'm a non-technical founder and um, I outsource a lot of my dev to start with. And then I went through literally 35 and I class them as dates trying to find a, a CTO and I really struggled, <laughs> uh, de- desperately struggled. What's your advice in that situation? Like how does a non, how would a non-technical founder uh, reach out and what's the, what's the, what's the things that people like me should know to hire good people like you to join the company? Like what's the things that most excite your breed of person in terms of on the technical side? Yeah. I mean, I think competence, uh, <laughs> no, uh I mean, obviously like, uh, direct skills in the things that are complementary and not covered. So typically technical people are not strong in marketing or tax law or, you know, fundraising techniques. So I think, having some sort of skill in those areas or literally this could be taking a course at it. It doesn't have to be, you know, 10 years as a CPA or something. Um, but like those are the skills that are needed there and like just real leadership background, um, and, and a million different forms, but those are the sort of complementary skills. But I would also say, um, my advice always to non-technical founders is like, there is no excuse for you to not go get a little bit technical. Um, especially if you're running a digital startup because, and I think Jen has said this in uh, things. She, she also non-technical, uh, she's gotten more technical over the years as the jobs demanded. Um, but early on just outsourced stuff and had trouble communicating even the contracts and the terms and the ideas to those companies, um, because she just didn't have some of the background, uh, just a little bit like things like, if you're a non-technical co-founder, you need to know what a database is. You need to know what a programming language is. You need to know, uh, like, the basics of what a HTML, what a web page is. Like, that's or there's a native app and a, a, a website. Like, those are things that you like. You need to come in knowing um, just the concepts. You don't have to be a pro. You don't need to be a programmer. Um, but it's you know you have to be able to find that middle ground with technical people to even discuss it because it'd be like, if you said, Oh, we're going to do a marketing campaign and the technical founder is like, I'm not sure what that is. Like what is marketing? What is a campaign? Um, and you're like, you need to have that as a partnership. It's just like, Oh, I know what you're talking about. Just for um, communication basics. And I guess, yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah. Tick, tick in the box. You made me feel a little bit better. Cause one thing I did go and learn, I did learn basics. I did build a couple of websites from scratch, but I was so bad at it. And I thought I need to outsource this, but at least <laughs> I, guess, I guess one of the benefits I had is when I was then speaking to technical people, I didn't know, I didn't know in the weeds what they were talking about, but I knew high level that I could maintain a conversation and ask the right questions. I think yes. that's, I think that's one thing that was yes, helpful. Absolutely. 
and things when like a project isn't going well, being able to talk about those or trade-offs. Um, yep. You know, I think that's, that can be really, if you don't have the language at all, like, you know, it is, it, it's like being blind and you're like being the architect of a building, right? Or something like, not that blind people can't architect buildings, um, but you have to use other techniques, right? You have to find that way to communicate because tech is really this hidden cathedral that's being built. And that cathedral is your business, especially if it's an online or digital based business. Um, so being able to even understand what a brick is and what a spire is and like how, you know, what a wall is like just knowing those core concepts uh, really helps the communication because there's a lot of trust with the tech, like you're trusting them to build something that'll last uh, the ages. Um, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I'm just going back to like the last three, four years in terms of where I was five years ago. And I guess even as a non-technical guy myself, you do you do pick up stuff and you have to just as the company progresses, I guess like Jen, you have to just become more aware and more savvy because as for me, it's as the costs go up, I need to know what I'm paying for, especially when we're outsourcing stuff. That's where it's really hit me in the, uh, in mm -hmm. the pocket. Um, I guess one of the questions, one of the personal questions that I had in terms of uh, from a business perspective, uh, and I, I was hoping to get some, you to shed some light on it is what experience have you had where pros and cons, uh, where, where things have gone well and, and big mistakes that founders like me make trying to integrate product marketing sales when you're trying to piece those, cause it's very siloed in my business right now and it doesn't feel like it's very well connected. It's sort of, this has been built, let's market it. How, how does this get done more efficiently in the businesses that you've worked in, built or where you are today? Like how should that workflow take place in a, in a perfect situation? It depends entirely on who you're selling to and what the product category is. Um, I was hoping you'd say that. I was hoping you had a silver bullet for me. <laughs> No, I mean, there's usually the, the type of, I mean, the role traditionally is product marketing is typically the job title of the person who should be tying that together if you have a, a Salesforce kind of based uh, model um, because generally they're the ones trying to kind of communicate what it does to both the salespeople and the marketing materials and kind of be the whisper back and forth. Um, <clears throat> or depends at certain companies I've been at product has ranged everything from, you know, technical project management almost where they're kind of embedded in teams and working with the engineers to actually, you know, deliver day to day. Um, and there's other versions where product people have been extremely customer focused and it's really the tech or does the design itself and the implementation. Um, and I think, Honestly, there's no silver bullet for it. Um, it is just putting in place whatever parts you have based off what sort of product organization, what sort of, honestly, who you hire matters a lot too, right? Like, uh, I mean, I would say uh, if you haven't had uh, your product people involved in sales, uh, you should. Okay. Uh, one technique I've seen work really well is you basically have to go on the road um, with customers because if you're a sales-based organization, you're, your customer is the one who's writing the check, but it's also your salespeople um, because the totality of what the customer will understand is what the salesperson is telling them uh, it'll do. And so having that kind of like, what are the customers asking for? What are their understandings of the product? Um, to me, that's, it's as important as when you do just consumer research because um, they are your consumer. Um, I was at a company called MoveWeb where we had a, 
a fairly large enterprise software sales force. Um, and yeah, we did a lot of that. We had a, a really good product uh, marketing team also um, who helped build the bridge. Yeah, that's a, a really bit of advice. I guess one of the things that's happening internally for us right now is um, we have um, customer success um, uh, members of the team uh, and they seem to always be butting heads with our internal technical people because the customer success team are sort of front facing, dealing with any issues, mm-hmm. uh, bugs, products. And then internally, the development team don't seem to feel the pain, the urgency behind it. Like how do you, is, have you got any tips around how you tackle that problem? Oh yeah, you make them do the job. Pardon? Sorry, they, you make them do the job of the customer success person like for a week. Um, oh, that's brilliant. Sorry, that that's is, so simple. I have, <laughs> yeah, I've implemented that everywhere. Um, we, <clears throat> I, we did that at um, MoveWeb, which was a purely digital company, but we had a customer success team, exact same thing. They were going through pains that were very different. And I, I ran the engineering team that were all these, you know, pure coders. And yeah, we made sure people actually went and worked with the customers to, to, to do that. And they were like, wow, you have no idea how tough that was. Um, and actually, at, at Rent the Runway, we have a thing where every new employee actually has to go work in both the warehouse and our retail stores. Um, so they go do a shift. And if you're working in one of those areas at all, building product or software or anything, um, yeah, you have to work uh, at least once a year in one of those uh, departments because you need to go do the job if you're going to help support them and what they're doing. That's amazing. Um, and, I guess you get and, more empathetic. Oh, absolutely. And there's nothing worse. The hardest one is we have, we have customer service agents where you go listen in on the phone call. So that's actually a thing you do on your, your first day. Sorry. And you, uh, sitting there listening to women call in who especially had maybe an event coming up and you know, things go wrong occasionally and something didn't arrive or got lost in the mail. And you know, you're hearing that customer say, my sister's wedding is tomorrow. Like, how can you like, being like being in that moment and having to apologize for it or didn't work with the agents or who's, who's doing this, you know, they, they are miracle workers. I could not do that job. Um, even listening in is just stressed me out because you want know, you want to solve it. You want to reach to the phone and hug them and fix it. And we do like we have tons of ways to fix it, but like it's really, it really puts a whole new perspective so that when an engineer pushes out bad code and they go, Oh, you know, 20 orders, something went wrong with them today or something like that. Right. Um, like, oh, 20, that's not that bad. But when you have that emotional connection that this is actually impacting people and you think back to the voices you heard, you know, that's 20 people who are actually having an emotional problem because of what just happened. You view it very, very differently because you feel connected to it. That is, uh, that's an absolutely, uh, that's a silver bullet for me. That, that's, I'm already thinking about how I can move my development team step-by-step step into some customer success roles over the next couple of months. That, um, <laughs> that's, that's a big win. Yeah, and, and, and look, they'll complain about it. It's fine. Just let them make just, them do just it. Just get on with it. No. <laughs> get on with it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. I mean, I'm just going to say Hampton said, this is what happens. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, Hampton, listen, I'm really aware of time. Uh, we always like to, to wrap up with some fast fire questions. Have you still got five to 10 minutes to rattle through these? I do. Let's go. Brilliant stuff. So my biggest problem here is not following up with your answers. So I'm going to do my best and just keep moving uh, at a pace. What is the one thing you know now that you would tell the 18-year-old version of yourself? Um, don't be afraid. That, that was good. That's that, perfect. Yeah, that's good. 
What's the number one tool, service, or hack you use to get work done that the listeners may not know about? Uh, do not use tools. Uh, <laughs> I've got, a, I've I got a, a follow up. <laughs> yeah, I am. I am a firm believer. I don't do not bring my laptop to meetings. I do not look at my phone. Um, I do not take notes. Um, I really, really believe in being as present as I can be. And uh, if they aren't talking about anything useful or there isn't anything on the agenda that I need to be involved in or nobody needs anything, uh, then I leave. But I don't, I have to keep in my mind the most important things going on right then. And I just, I think every time I see somebody use a good tool to sort of solve that or productivity hacks, um, I find them, I watch them spending more time with it and maybe they find it useful. People can do whatever they want, but I just, I'm a believer and don't do any of that. Super interesting answer. What's the best piece of advice you've been given and who gave it to you? My dad, um, he said when you are new to, uh, he was on a board uh, of something and he says, he said when, when I'm he's like, he just joined when he said, I, I was new, so tonight I just listened. He's like, and I'm going to listen for the first three meetings. And I'm just going to listen. I'm going to figure out how everybody relates to each other here, what they're actually meaning when they use different words, and how the whole situation is. And then I'm going to start talking. Um, and I, I have done my best to try to apply that, uh, though I like talking. But it is whenever you're new to a thing or a situation, just listen. Um, and then start talking after. Great bit of advice again. Yeah, you smashed them out of the park here, mate. Um, okay, next one is, if you weren't doing the job you're doing today, what is the next business you'd start? Ooh. Gosh. I mean, I, I wouldn't do this. I, it's actually this business. Like, it's right the runway stuff. So I, That's cool. I really think the economics, uh, like, th this is going to be a huge thing and it's like, clothes are the most wasteful. They're expensive. We can make them cheaply now. So H&M and Zara, they're just like, you know, making a ton of money, but it's so wasteful. They like 30% of clothes that are produced every year are burned. Um, just clothes production is just so wasteful. Everything in your closet just sits there all the time. People don't wear most of the clothes in their closet. Um, it's incredibly wasteful. It's terrifying like that. Anyhow, and just the economics are way off uh, because what it takes to actually produce those things, if you actually make sure that they're utilized better, uh, just it hits it out of the park in every single way from finance, personal finances to it's read the right way are profitable doing this. And it is also ecologically a huge win. Even when you're putting these things on airplanes to send them back and forth between customers, it still comes out a huge net positive, um, which is insane. For me, just hearing you speak about that, my head went to, I need to spend some time learning about Jen and how she's built such an amazing culture to hear how passionately you speak about the business. So that's on my to-do list off the back of this. I'm super <laughs> interested to learn more about I, she, she, You should, absolutely. she got tons of interviews out there. I'm, I'm going to go and find them 100%. Um, next one from me. Um, I actually know you've got a podcast. I'm going to say that. So um, if, you, if you listen to the show right now, uh, Hampton has a podcast called We Have a Microphone. So outside of that, uh, and by the way, uh, love the titles of how you... Uh, I didn't get time to listen to one, but love the titles. I'm going to go and listen to one. So guys, go and listen to We Have a Microphone. Um, if, if that's off the table, if you recommend one book or podcast, what is it? Um... I, okay, uh, there, I normally 
absolutely hate how-to business books or like how-to leadership books because I really into that being present and I, I, I like to start things myself and come in questioning everything. But uh, there's a book, Culture Code, that um, uh, was recommended to me and I agreed to start reading it. And it kind of fits a lot of what I've seen in my career. Um, it just talks about a lot of ways of building high-functioning teams and what that means and how to create environments and leadership skills that are really important. And I actually, I can't believe I'm recommending like a business ebook. Like I, <laughs> almost everything in there, I'm like, you know, that's, it's funny. It's actually kind of, I mean, not to brag, it's stuff that I do, um, a lot of it, which I just had never seen anybody give the rationale behind it and kind of be like the, the arguments making them. I'm like, yes, yeah, absolutely. I, I agree. And it's, it's, it's nice because now I'm making all of my uh, directors who work for me read it. <laughs> this is how I need you to manage. Like, read this book. Someone's, um, pack- someone's packaged up your personal thoughts and put it in a book for you, it sounds like. Um, I'm, I've just made- <laughs> Much more eloquently than me. <laughs> Much more eloquently. And a lot more pages. I'm, uh, I've just made a note of that. I'm going I'm to read that. And uh, yeah, I'll drop you a line after I've done it with my thoughts. Um, outside of outside of relation, direct relationships, so husbands off the table, parents off the table, who has had the largest impact in your life? I don't know. Me. Can I? <laughs> I you, can, you, you can 100% use that, but I'm going to follow up with why. <laughs> I think... Why, why did it go to you in your head? Why did you struggle for someone else? Is it because you're a builder and you like to create from scratch? That's where I, where when you said me, I thought oh, that makes sense to me actually. Yeah, I mean, like I, I mean, deeply, deeply flawed human being. You know, like it's not, it's not me because like I'm amazing. Uh, I think, as I said with the first one, what was the advice I'd given? It's like don't be afraid. I think people trusting themselves um, and trusting their instincts and giving themselves the space to fail and to succeed um, is really important. And I've worked with amazing people and I have amazing friends. And I mean, there's a ton of people I can name, right? But like, I, I actually just think the, the best thing I've done in my adult life was sort of some of those breakthrough moments where I'm like, you know, it, it, ha- it has to be me who's making the decisions for my life, right? Nobody's going to give me the silver bullet. Um, like, and, and I think that that is the, the truth is that just you have to believe in yourself. Not, not that I'm not, not that you're perfect, right? That's like, that's false belief. That's, that's worship of yourself. Um, but I think just knowing that you are you and that you're in your own skin and this is who you are and not to be afraid of being who you are, um, I think is just absolutely the way to meet the world as equals, uh, which that's actually oddly the goal for me of saying that it's not to come in as aren't I the greatest. It's actually, to say, hey, here I am, and, and I am a part of this world, and I should be part of it, and I'm here, and I'm going to trust myself, and I'm going to be myself. Hampton, I can't think of a better way to end this show. Listen, I super appreciate your time. If people want to learn more about you or what you're working on, where do you, where do you point people to? Where do they go? Twitter, or invite me to speak at your conference. So, <laughs> what's the Twitter handle? Uh, Catlin. I'm H-C-A-T-L-I-N everywhere on the internet. Also, for I know there's a lot of uh, European work definitely hiring, so you can work with me both in New York and in Galway, Ireland. Um, so just starting up an office there. So anybody out there who wants to work with me, 
uh, you can. <laughs> That's another way to find out. I like it. I saw I saw the island operation, and uh, yeah, I was I, again in the research element. I thought okay, I could get lost in this. Like it all looks super interesting. So, guys, you heard it there. Either grab him on Twitter. If you've got a conference, grab the man because after forty five <laughs> minutes, I've got more notes than probably everyone that you have done so far. Um, or if you, if you want to go and work for him, uh, you know where to find him. <laughs> Hampton, yeah. this is this has been thoroughly enjoyable for me, mate. I really appreciate your time. Thank you no so problem, much. Thanks. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that interview. Don't forget, head over to Startup Stories and hit subscribe because that's where you can find all of season one and be ready for when we drop season two. Speak to you soon.